How are you today, Andrew? Doing great. Doing great, Eric. I uh, appreciate appreciate you asking. No problem. I'm here for you, buddy. I've got a question for you, Andrew. Okay. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> this is a hypothetical question. Okay. So we're in fantasy land. Yeah. Let's say that you were in a fight with a guy. It's not necessarily your fault. It's definitely a guy. Uh, with another with another person. And it's not necessarily your fault. This person's been kind of a jerk. Pressed this fight on you. But you're definitely fighting. And you're telling everybody that you're fighting. We're, we're tell is are we advertising? You got it? people like around you, and you're telling them like I'm fighting this guy right now. This this person, I'm fighting him. Would you then proceed to punch them or kick them or do it, grab them in any way? Yeah, if I'm if I'm fighting them, I'm fighting them. If you're telling everyone you're fighting them, they're they're making you fight, but you you are like doing stuff. You're you're punching at them. You're you're getting them. I'm going to give him my best shot, Eric. That's what I'm going to do. That's an interesting choice, giving your opponent your best shot. Uh, I'm going to tell you about some people who uh, did not manage to do that. Huh. Big Time Whoopsies, a podcast about incompetence on a grand scale. I am your host, Eric McAdams, and each episode, I tell a guest, and you the listener, a story from history that involves massive incompetence. A lot of people making a lot of mistakes. With me today is my friend Andrew. Say hi, Andrew. Hi, Andrew. How's everything going, Andrew? You are like the third person to make that joke. (laughs) I, I kind of felt obligated to make the joke because I feel like at this point it's part of the opening. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> I think it might at this rate become that. It's a tradition. Yeah. I can't be the one to buck the trend. Passed down from father to son. I only interview uh, direct family lines on this podcast. Yeah, my dad did it last week. He, was, mm-hmm. he's, he won't stop talking about it. <laughs> would your da- Do you think your dad would be interested in this podcast? My dad would love this podcast, and I'll tell you why, Eric. <laughs> he is a big fan of history, uh-huh. and he loves those football folly videos from, like, the 80s. So I feel like this is a real marriage of the two. All right, hold up. What is a football folly video? Because I, like, I, I like football, and I don't know what those are. So imagine it's Sunday afternoon. You're taking a nap. You're mm-hmm. kind of in and out. Mm-hmm. The NFL Network found its way on the television. Yeah, really grainy old-timey footage Uh of bad plays mixed with really funny orchestral music (laughs) so it'll be like so it'll be like a guy you know he's got 20 yards on the next guy he's running to the end zone he's about to make it and he slips on a banana peel and this whole thing is you know put to this grandiose soundtrack it's (laughs) It really is lovely. I just imagine the guy who came up with this, like, well, I'm a football analyst, but I also love Looney Tunes. No, that's exactly what it's like. Like, they might as well put the Looney Tunes track onto NFL (laughs) films. 
It's so, perfect for a Sunday afternoon, I'm telling you. You just <laughs> pass out, you wake up, it's going to be on. Still going. Yep. It's been going all your life. You've always been watching it. Yep. And so is my dad, more dad. importantly. Your, your dad <laughs> likes history and he likes feeling superior to football players. So, I mean... It's humanizing. This, this episode isn't going to be about football players, but it's like, it's practically the same thing. It's going to be about World War II. I do like equating major political and historical events to football games. It's always uh, an accurate comparison. On some level, I think sports metaphors are the only ones that I assume anyone can understand. Yep. (laughs) This is a real thing. No, it absolutely is. Like, I just, like, if if I'm trying to, like, make something make sense i just like i assume that no one's going to get it unless i put it in terms of sports exactly like if you can't see the similarities between say the korean war and game six of the 1984 world series then you know are are you ever really going to learn frankly i i don't think you can be sure that you have any kind of logical thinking apparatus on top of your shoulders just one of those things you know you get it or you don't so this is the first Big Time Whoopsies episode to tie into a uh, movie. We've got we've got an official tie-in. Yep, definitely sponsored by the movie. We're sponsored by the movie Dunkirk. No, actually, we're not. Because the thing is, they, they're not going to sponsor us. Because this is a podcast about incompetence. And this episode is going to be about the historical background leading up to the miracle at Dunkirk. Christopher Nolan would feel like quite a weenie if he was on this podcast. I think I I haven't seen Dunkirk yet because we're we're recording it before. This is pre Dunkirk. We're looking into the future. Yeah, that's how the calendars are going to be marked from now until the end of time. There was pre Dunkirk and post Dunkirk. PD, if you will. Yeah. So this episode is titled "The Phony War and the Miracle at Dunkirk." I didn't think of a good title for this one. I'm sorry. That was a pretty good title. It doesn't really roll off the tongue like the Garbage Mafia. Yeah, no, that was that was a good one. I think alternatively the title could have been Andrew's Never Seen the Movie. I'm going to tell him about it. Yeah. I think there's a chance that I won't spoil anything, just so you know. But you haven't seen the movie. Maybe Christopher Nolan drastically changed history. This is possible. So in that case, I want to spoil a, a goddamn thing, not even the exposition. But this is this episode is mostly going to give you the historical background of Dunkirk, pre, like the preface to Dunkirk, not what actually happened, because what actually happened was mostly competent. So I don't have much to say there. It's the prequel trilogy a la Star Wars, if you will. Yeah. I like to think that this is uh, The Hobbit, The Battle of the Five Armies. Ah, yeah. That's probably a more apt comparison, and certainly a better one. Actually, yeah, that is a very apt comparison. I was mostly making a joke because it's a very bad movie, but it's very close to what I'm going to be talking about. So, you want to get into it? Let's get into it. Let's fucking go. I have got two pages of notes for you. Got, I got some gags planned. Yeah, this is actually uh, this is actually a fun game for the listeners at home. Eric and I have planted nine jokes throughout yeah. the entirety of this podcast. But you won't know their jokes at the time. Exactly. So just try to keep score at home. Uh, yeah. We'll uh, we'll circle up at the end and see if you found the them. The secrets are there. They will lead you to the destination. So, uh, Andrew, World War One wasn't great. It wasn't the best war. 
wasn't the, it wasn't great. It's on my Mount Rushmore of wars, but it wasn't the best. Yeah, I've heard it was the war to end all wars, and whoever came up with that, man, what a practical joker. Yeah, he uh, he didn't call that one. That was yeah, a, he was, that was he, he wasn't on top of his game that that day when he prognosticated that one. And the problem is, once it's used once, it can't be used again. Yeah, it's the only war that's known as the war to end all wars. And there was many since. <laughs> yeah, none of the wars that came after that are called that. I wonder why. Huh? They should have just kept naming wars. This is really the one. Yeah, this this one. This one, guys. All right, we've had enough. No more of this war stuff. The end of all wars. The last one. That I mean, that should have been a rule. He called it the War of All Wars. Like, all right, yeah. guys, we can't do any more. Like, you'd think people would have the goddamn respect to stop after that. What does it take? What does so, it take? I don't know if you know this, but Germany lost the the First World War. I did know that. After the First World War, the economy of most of Europe was in a shambles. Amidst this shambles, the League of Nations was created for the purpose of collective security. Collective security is an idea that dates back not as long as you'd think, that maybe all these countries shouldn't fight each other and should instead work together to make a better future. Think Justice League. It has, I swear to God, it has not been around as long as you think it has. (laughs) You would think this would be an idea from time immemorial. It isn't. You would think this would be at the beginning of human history. People go like, maybe we shouldn't fight each other. Nah. (laughs) This is not the case. (laughs) I briefly checked, like, the Wikipedia article on, like, collective security. And the first thing they, like, there are a few things from, like, ancient history. But the first, like, written one is in, like, 1795 took us that long huh at least westerners anyway the wheel is a lot sexier i can see how that one took off fire you know birth of christianity ho-hum the league of nations was created for collective security the whole purpose is that no more big wars guys that was the war to end all wars we're not doing that again stop it this the league of nations does not stop its own nations from doing really anything that they want to do. For instance, it doesn't stop Japan from invading Manchuria, part of northern China. It doesn't stop Italy from invading Ethiopia, even though these are things that they expressly said that they were not going to do anymore. Like, the whole League of Nations point was, you know, we're going to stop doing this, no more big wars. Then fucking Japan invades its neighbor. Italy goes to fucking africa for some reason they were thinking big i guess i just i i really don't get why friggin ethiopia is where italy went like well i just can't stop myself from invading there this sounds a lot like when you tell yourself you're gonna go to the gym like it's like all right guys this time i'm definitely gonna go to the gym it's more like when you keep telling all your friends that you're gonna tell off that one problematic friend but you just kind of let them keep doing what they're doing. Like, literally, Japan was part of the League of Nations. They signed all the agreements that said no more wars or invasions or anything. But then they invaded China. And so the, the League of Nations was going to propose sanctions against Japan to block them and hurt and punish them economically for this. But Japan was part of the League of Nations. And any member of the League of Nations could veto any 
thing that they signed into So Japan law. would just veto everything. So Japan would just veto sanctions against itself, so sanctions against itself never happened. Foiled again. What a loophole they found. Yeah, that's a pretty big one. Yeah. So, following this, Adolf Hitler, I don't know if you've heard of him. The uh, name seems familiar. I think I knew his older brother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Probably went to high school with him. Yeah, sat behind me in geometry. Adolf Hitler's kind of watching this going, huh, the League of Nations ain't shit. And one of the things Germany was never supposed to do after the Treaty of Versailles, which was the treaty that they signed after World War One, one of the things Germany was never supposed to do again was militarize or mobilize their army in the Rhineland, the uh, area of Germany near the Rhine River, because that would mean that they wouldn't be able to strike westward with their army very quickly. So in 1936, Germany, under Adolf Hitler, remilitarizes the Rhineland. And this is kind of a gamble because they don't really know what the Allies, uh, what the League of Nations is, how they're going to respond to this. They don't think Britain's going to be a problem because Britain has been pretty sympathetic to the Germans up till now. They've been very like, oh, we beat them so badly. Their economy's terrible. Let's just be nice to them. Which is, you know, a laudable sentiment. So they're not expecting anything from Britain. They don't know how France is going to respond to this. Because, again, this is explicitly something they're not supposed to do under the treaty after the First World War. Yeah, it's the first time. I mean, it's like the first time you do anything. You're just like, all right, we'll see what happens. It's like stealing yeah. something from your parents. It's like, and, well, and I've never gotten caught before. Like there were there were there were members of the Nazi Party, advisors to Hitler, who that didn't support this. They didn't want to be a part of this. They thought that they would be that it would provoke the Allies, and nothing happens. Nothing. No real sanctions. No real resistance. They just remilitarize the Rhineland, and that's it. Huh. Everything's cool. Hitler notices this. A couple years later, 1938, Hitler has consolidated power, and since Hitler was born in Austria, he wants to reunite Austria and Germany into one nation. Austrians are big into this idea, but again, this is well, something that Germany is forbidden from doing, according to the treaty that they signed after World War One, What was in it for the Austrians? What, what was all the hubbub? I think they just wanted to be part of Germany. That's true. I want to be part of Germany. Something like 99% of Austrians supported this. Wow. Like some ridiculously high number. They just wanted to be, you know, they had been part of Germany before. They wanted to be part of Germany again. They weren't invited to the party. And suddenly they had their chance. And so, in 1938, the German army moves into Austria to fanfare and cheers. So they are one nation again, and they wait and see for how the Allies will respond. Dot, dot, dot. And nothing happens. Oh. Again, the Allies kind of go, hey, cut that shit out, but they don't do anything. What follows is the political philosophy known as appeasement. You may have heard this before. Appeasement. How do you spell that? I'm writing it down. A-P-P-E-A-S-E-M-E-N-T. I put three Ps. <laughs> Look, I, I got carried away. You're excited, I get it. Yeah. Appeasement is a political philosophy mostly espoused by British politicians during this time. British politicians 
who really didn't want to go into a world war. Which, like, understandable. I get it. I can't really blame a guy for not wanting to fight in a war. They just got out of a bad relationship. Why am I going to get back into another one? It seems like a bad idea. Like, I get this. I get this. Appeasement is essentially placate Germany. Make them happy. Make them realize the benefits of being a part of an international supportive network. That way, they can be friends. They can stop invading things. They can stop trying to grab power. Everything will be good. Everybody will be friends. Give the kid in the corner his toy. Appeasement is mostly known for what happens next in 1938. So the Sudetenland is a part of Czechoslovakia on the border with Germany that is a mostly German population. Hitler thinks that the Sudetenland should also be a part of Germany. So in 1938, Germany invades the Sudetenland. And this is when the international community says, all right, fucko, we gotta talk. Come sit at the big boys' table. You gotta stop this shit. The Germans were already on third base. This should have happened years ago. Mm-hmm. But it's, a, it's an admittedly clever thing that's, like, a very calm, like, yeah, remilitarize the Rhineland. That's part of Germany. They should be allowed to do what they want in Germany. Whatever. Eh, bring back Austrian. They're not supposed to, but the Austrians are fine with it. Oh, they're invading another country now. But the Sudetenland isn't really another country because it's mostly German. So again, it's a, it's a halfway measure. What follows is Germany meets with Italy, England, and France. With Benito Mussolini from France, uh, Prime Minister Daladier. From England comes Neville Chamberlain. And Neville Chamberlain drives this. And what they come to what they call the Munich Agreement. What would you guess happens in the Munich Agreement? Like, what do they all agree to do? Because this is all sparked by Germany invading a place they weren't supposed to invade. I would imagine it's kind of a reiteration of the League of Nations to begin with. Like, look, guys, we kind of talked about this, but we let it go. Let's actually not invade places now. Let's, let's kind of stop where we're at and be good guys. Yeah, that, that's pretty much what happens. The, they let Germany keep the Sudetenland. They just let them keep it. Nah, you guys can have it. And essentially, they also, like, partition and divide up the rest of Czechoslovakia among other nations. Like, and what's really crazy is Czechoslovakia is not given a choice in this. They're just kind of told and then pressured by the allies. The allies, Britain and France, were, were ostensibly the Czechoslovakian allies. They were, like, they were allied nations. Right. And you've got Britain and France going, like, yeah, okay, we know that this kind of sucks for you, but we're scared of Germany. And we want to be friends and we don't want another world war. So can you, like, just be not a thing for a little while? <laughs> That'd be great. Chamberlain returns from this triumphant. He thinks the meeting went great. The Munich Agreement will stop. Well, we have, we have uh, decided this. We know we've met with Hitler. We know that he's not going to do what he's been doing anymore. He's, he returns from the Munich Agreement and declares that he has secured peace for our time. That's a direct quote. Hitler, meanwhile, goes back to his advisors and in a speech he has this choice quote, Our enemies have leaders who are below the average, no personalities, 
no masters, no men of action. Our enemies are little worms. I saw them in Munich. A little bit of a different reaction than uh, old Yeah, Marvel. it's almost like one of them is just relieved not to ha- be having a war, and the other one is definitely planning for a war. Now, at this point, what's the communication like between these nations? You mean between, like, Germany and England? Yeah. You know, you figure he gives a speech, there's millions of people, Germany's like, all right, let's go. Britain's like, oh, everything's appeased. Yeah. There's still... I mean, there are still lines of communication, at least. Right. It's not like they all are super open with each other and everyone knows what the other person's doing. They didn't have the Wall Street Journal back then. Yeah, there weren't a lot of, like, investigative journalists, like, running around in the international community telling everyone what was up. Yeah. It was hard to know exactly what Hitler was doing. And this is why... For the first couple moments of appeasement, I can't really blame the Allies. Because, like, you can't... You couldn't have known exactly what was going to happen with Hitler. Right. Like, you were hearing really shady stuff. Like, he was obviously not a good guy. But you can't expect, like, literally he was planning to rule the world at this point. Yeah, it's a bit of a leap. Yeah. I think around the time he invades the Sudetenland, you should have figured it out, though. Yeah. Like, that's him invading. That's him clearly going, I'm not just reclaiming old parts of Germany. I'm planning on expanding into new territory as well. Bit of a red flag. This is also, uh, there's a there's a concept called Western betrayal, which I found out about while researching this, which has, which is, I'll get into in a future episode. Because this is this this one is very much about just the beginning of World War II on the Western Front. I'm not concentrating on anything else really. Western betrayal is the idea that the Allies on the West in Western Europe essentially abandoned Eastern Europe to both the Nazis and then the Soviet Union. Just left them out to dry. Which obviously they did in Czechoslovakia, like pretty brutally. <laughs> Yeah, like, really, really clearly and blatantly happened. Yeah. But in other times, like, they were supposed to be their allies, and there's a lot of feeling, like, during World War II, the French and the British were really only helping each other. That's it. And the other allies were clearly thought of as expo- as expendable. It's a scary world. They were trying to protect their own asses. I mean, yeah. Like... I, like, it's it seems like they were pretty scared. <laughs> like... Honestly, I don't think they were that scared of Germany because they didn't know what was going to happen. But it certainly seems like they had to have been given the way they behaved. It's a series of saying one thing and doing another in summation. There's this uneasy truce after that for like a whole year. Remember when he talked about peace and our peace for our time? Yep. So on September 1st, 1939, Germany invades Poland. Rutrow. Chamberlain realizes, oh, peace isn't happening, is it? And that's when the Allies declare war on Nazi Germany. September 1st, 1939. This is the beginning of World War II, technically. It's also the beginning of what we call the Phony War. The Phony War is a period of about five or six months 
right at the beginning, right after the Allies declare war on Germany, in which not much happens. This is where the question that I asked you came into play, because if you said you were about to fight a guy, you would probably start to fight him, right? 100%. Punch to his gut, punch to his face. Maybe lead some kind of offensive thing. For the next five months, there are almost no offensive operations from any part of the Allies, aside from, like, the occasional border skirmish. There are no large engagements, there are no large battles, there are no campaigns. Nothing happens. This is partially because the Allies' view of this war was completely misguided. So, do, what do you know about World War One and how it was fought? Let's go with the base case and say very little. You, But you know that they did, like, trench warfare. That was a thing. Right. So trench warfare was how most of World War One was fought, and that's essentially what happens when two armies see each other across a field and just decide to sit down for a while. <laughs> that's a pretty good explanation, right? <laughs> <laughs> checks, checks the uh, dictionary. Yep, that checks out. Yep, that's right there. That's right in the old Britannica. Sits down. Uh, they sit down and stare at each other for the next little while, and that's honestly what defines World War One. It's this long drawn out campaign where soldiers sit in trenches for months and then get blown up by artillery from a long way off yikes like that's what happens you paint such a rosy picture the allies essentially think that this war is going to be the same there's there's literally a term for it the french called it the war of long duration their plan for this war was they would bank on the superior economic power of the allies they would blockade the germans they would make sure that they had no access to real economic might, and they would just kind of grind them down over time. That was their basic plan coming into this. And you can see this in how the French prepared for the war. They constructed what's called the Maginot Line, which is a series of concrete fortifications along their border with Germany. This The Maginot Line was considered at the time of its building to be like the the new thing in war like now we won't have to do trenches because we have these concrete fortifications that are not vulnerable from air or land and we'll be able to hold them off like that the Maginot line also has these love like clearly the french were concerned with how terrible trench warfare had been for their soldiers <laughs> they were like huh hmm people didn't really seem to like fighting in trenches very much and so there's all these like nice quality of life touches in the Maginot line like, there are little railroads between the things underground so you can get from one place to the next. There are, like, there's like facilities for, like, cooking and all this stuff. There are, like, living spaces, actual living spaces in these fortifications. They checked a lot of the Yelp reviews from the First World War <laughs> and were essentially trying to improve so that this one could be more enjoyable. They added this... cup holders. The service was a little <laughs> bit better. This strikes me as, like, the most French approach to war ever. <laughs> like, they're like, you know what I bet would help us in the war if our soldiers were, like, really happy in the fortifications. If they, you know, if the seats had some cushions. If they had the technology, the seats would not only have cushions, they would have butt warmers. Yeah, oh yeah, oh, for sure, absolutely, 100%. Cold winners. So that's the Maginot Line, and the Maginot Line is meant to act as not just a defense, but also a deterrent against Germany, like, don't fuck with us, 
we have these awesome fortifications. You cannot cross our border with, like, you cannot get through here. Which is pretty much true. They, like, the Maginot Line is a serious construction, and it would have been very difficult to go through it. The Maginot Line, uh covered France's border with Germany and it was meant to die in the event of total war it was meant to divert Germany if they wanted to get at France Germany would have to go through Belgium to get at them and that would allow uh that would give them the, the French supposed that that would give them several weeks to plan and meet the German assault in a kind of pincer style attack and just take them out easily that's what they thought would happen in this war I'm sensing uh, from your tone that that is not what happened so uh, something that people don't know a lot about the french army and the french fortifications were considered to be top of the line going into this war they thought they people were like the french army that's that is our new hope we know that most of the fighting took place in france last time but this time the french are prepared they have mechanical advantages their guns shoot farther than anyone else they've got these great fortifications but actually the truth was not as great their air force was nearly non-existent. They didn't have great communication networks. One thing that the Germans were doing was making sure that every single tank had wireless communications so they could coordinate easily. The French tanks didn't really get this idea. They had, the French had developed almost no new tactics. They were planning to use their tanks in pretty much the same way they used them in World War I. Meanwhile, the Germans came up with this idea called the Blitzkrieg. Ah, I've heard that one before. Yeah, the Blitzkrieg, which translates to lightning war, is a system of war designed almost entirely around tanks. And what that meant was, essentially, instead of it being infantry-based and tanks acting as support, the infantry would support the tanks, as, and the air force would do the same as more of a tactical, strategic usage as opposed to just a more general usage, which had been, or a defensive usage, which is what the French were planning on using. So that's what, that's what the French and the Germans are doing right now. They're not really attacking each other. And the only time that the French do anything during the phony war is in September and October when they launch what is called the Saar Offensive. This is just after Poland has been invaded and they wanted to head into Germany because they have just declared war, divert troops away from Poland so Poland can organize its defenses better and use their numerical advantages to really press Germany and convince them that a war was... and press them to surrender quickly. Along the French border with Germany, France had almost twice as many men and armored divisions as Germany did. They had a clear numerical advantage. And they do venture into German territory. They take about 12 mostly undefended towns, and then... The French general, Maurice Gamelin, orders a withdrawal. Everyone leave. Come back to France. We need you. Hmm. So they abandon the towns they just conquered. Yep. They run away from the fortification they had. And once it becomes clear that the French are retreating, the Germans start harrying them on the way back and, like, forcing them out as well. And I will say again, the French had a numerical advantage in this area of the world at this point. So they're running, have no reason to run, but they're headed back to France. I literally, I couldn't tell you why they go back. Like, they encountered some difficulties, they were losing some tanks to mines, but 
for the most part, they had the advantage. And I, d I don't know why it happened. I don't know why they stopped. I don't know why this went, why this went on. They were trying to get those baguettes. They got homesick. They, they just wanted to go home. Maurice Gamelon was like, guys, I miss you. Come back. We need you. So the Sar Offensive, they capture about 12 undefeated, undefended towns. Then they give them up, run back, and about 2,000 men die in the process. Just trying to get back. Yeah. Because I told you the Germans started harrying them and shooting at them. And then they were the guys who died in the tanks that were blown up by mines. So, you know, that stuff adds up. Plus, some guys probably got sick and shat themselves to death. Yeah, that happens a lot. It does. It does. God, that'd be it bad. It does in armies. Happens a lot. Thank God I live in 2017. Yeah, right? I'm so glad I live in the future. <sighs> so that's... And after the Saar Offensive, and every single French soldier makes it back to France by October, after the Saar Offensive... France literally doesn't do anything to Germany for the next several months. So the guy who, what's the gentleman's name who called them back? Maurice Gamelin. Okay, Maurice. Yeah. He's in charge this entire time. So it was yeah. his idea. Everyone come back home. We need yep. you here. He was, he was the commander in chief of the French army. So they get back home and then they just sit tight. They just... Pretty much, because again... Gamala and the rest of the French army was expecting a defensive war, much like World War I, where they could slowly grind down the Germans. They were not, they were really not expecting any kind of offensive thing. And I think probably the worst part of this is, there were German commanders who were later tried at Nuremberg, who say that if France and Britain had attacked during this time with their numerical advantage... They could have probably stopped the German invasion of Poland because they could have forced all the troops to come back and help defeat the Fran the French and the British. Yikes. Like they like there are German commanders who say that whole defense formations could have just fallen apart if the French had been aggressive at this point. That was French. Really... Yeah. This is not the first time on this podcast that I have dragged the French military. Expose them. <laughs> That's what I'm here to do, but only only about the French. Body slam. Meanwhile, you would think that, like, England was doing something, but they weren't. So there's a guy named Kingsley Wood. <laughs> <laughs> like that name, huh? Yeah, I don't know. That one got me going. Kingsley Wood, the Secretary of State for Air. That's what his job title was at the time. He was in charge of the Air Force, essentially. Kingsley Wood had a pretty strong sense of, like, what was proper. And when they declared war, a member of parliament asked him, well, we have the strength to go bomb Germany. What should we, like, what should, like, we should be doing that. And instead, Kingsley Wood sent his bombers and reconnaissance planes over to do reconnaissance on Germany for to scope out potential bombing targets. And on their way... They would drop propaganda leaflets over German towns and cities. Not leaflets. Anything yeah. but leaflets. <laughs> Saying essentially, hey guys, the Nazis are lying to you. Stop following them or we'll have to go to war and you don't want that. 
I've read at, in some places that it was also meant to be kind of a clever intimidation thing. The British planes being like, you know, we could be bombing you right now, but we're not. Maybe you shouldn't fucking fight us. Just try to get up in their headspace. Yeah, I think that's what they were trying to do. I think if this is true, I don't think it worked because I think what the Germans did instead was step up their fucking anti-aircraft guns. Well, if anything, in the areas. Germans see this, they're like, look, everyone and their brother knows the French and British are not going to do anything. This is them just running scared. Yeah. Let's actually yeah. get some get some uh, get some uh, tanks behind this. Because, like I said, I don't think England and France were particularly scared of Hitler. I don't think they were particularly scared of Nazi Germany. But everything they've done would make them seem that way, right? Right. Absolutely. And so it would be really easy for Nazi leaders to just be like, "Don't worry about them. They're just they're fucking cowards. They can't do anything. We've been doing all this stuff, and they haven't done a single goddamn thing yet." So, like, wh- yeah. I mean, if you're Germany. There's no point in which you're like, all right, we better cut it out now. <laughs> all right, guys, they're coming. You know? <laughs> they got Man, if they can drop leaflets, I, who knows what they I'm telling you, those leaflets, they could have gone a long way. Maybe they said the wrong thing. You know, up until now, I was a Nazi. But this piece of paper really convinced me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this war thing's not for me. I should go back and become an artist. This... This leaflet that was dropped on my town really makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it was translated into German, all these leaflets. I'm not expecting it to be in English or French. I th- that would have been a really big oversight. Can you imagine? <laughs> they, can, they can speak English, right? Uh, let, better not translate it. It'll be too much work. Just drop it. I just think some of our meaning will get lost if we put it in German. They can see the pictures. That's enough. <laughs> They'll get it. They, they got the idea. Dropping leaflets as propaganda was something that was done throughout this war, would be done by aircraft for decades after this. The Germans did it, the Americans did it, everyone dropped leaflets for some reason. I mean, I did it when I was running for president in eighth grade. I just dropped a (laughs) bunch of things in the hallway. I still lost, but I'm I'm not upset, I'm, I'm not bringing it up. For, for no reason, but <laughs> but I did it. You wrote a Wikipedia page about yours. Yeah, seriously, why not? It was quite a battle. Came down was to the, it? Came down to the last few votes. Yeah, who'd you lose to? I lost to this girl named Alexis, and she was very Fucking popular Alexis. and very good at lacrosse. And I think if I were prettier or better at lacrosse, I wouldn't have had a real shot. <laughs> God damn it! If only I'd been good at lacrosse. You've ruined my career in politics by making me a swimmer. Yeah, seriously. If, if I was the Barack Obama of my middle school class, my yeah. life could be quite different right now. Could be. What, what were the president's duties in your eighth grade class? You know, to be honest, I, I don't know what I was running for. That could have been why I lost. <laughs> I'm voting for Andrew. He doesn't know what he's running for. <laughs> You'd be surprised with how many people got behind that sort of platform. <laughs> I mean, it's eighth grade. I wouldn't be that surprised. There are political candidates who have run under less. Oh, yeah. I think we can think of a few. Yeah, one or two, probably. So leaflets. Leaflets. Another thing that that a parliament member suggested to Kingsley Wood was to bomb the Black Forest because Germans got... They said that Germans got very romantic about their trees. They wanted... they Once they saw that the war was coming home and destroying their natural beauty, they'd reconsider. Kingsley Wood responds 
The Black Forest is private property. I'm not going to bomb private property. This guy is such a dork. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Kingsley Wood, like, not for me, man. Fucking... What a dweeb. <laughs> oh, I can't bomb that. It's private property. Look, I know we're at war, but trees have some sense, man. His last name is Wood. I mean, it's his family, practically. <laughs> Yeah, they're cousins, really. God, fucking dork. So this is literally all they fucking do. This is the phony war. Months. Months <laughs> like this. Just just chilling. Just like, just not bombing. Just just bring him bringing the troops home, dropping leaflets. And this leaflets. is what really gets me. Like I said before, you like you can't have expected Hitler to be fucking Adolf Hitler, the Nazi, like most evil person of all time, blah blah blah. You can't have known that he would be that back in 1936. At this point, you've got to know that his whole shit is going to be expanding and coming for more people. It's not coming out of nowhere at this point. Repeatedly he's gone like, "Oh, we're not enemies. I just need to do this even though the treaty says I can't do it." He does stuff he knows he's not supposed to do, and he knows you know he's not supposed to do. He does them anyway. You know he's not taking you at face value and treating you like you're an actual ally. And yet they still believe they can, like, convince the Germans to not go to war. Phony. And again, this is really emblematic of England and France only caring about themselves, because, like, they're not helping Poland. Oh, definitely not. You know? This action is only designed to get Germany to stop attacking before they start attacking them. Yep, 100%. There's no way it helps Poland at any point, and if they could have, they would have gone with the Tsar offensive. This is frustrating just learning about it. <laughs> I can't imagine living it. God damn. <laughs> the, the British people after this really do not take kindly to the politicians who endorsed appeasement. Yeah, I can't imagine Kingsley Wood having... Uh... Having a big following after this. Kingsley Wood wasn't one of the ones who was really shit on for this. Like Neville Chamberlain, the guy who said that we were, that he was securing peace for our time. He was one of the big ones. There were books written about this. There's one called Guilty Men that was all about like the like these are the specific politicians who failed to combat the Nazi threat. Coming for the jugular. Like, Find these families and make fun of them because their great-great-grandfather <laughs> was a loser. You go to school with this guy's grandchild? Fuck him up! <laughs> Throw that punch, <laughs> Billy. It's worth it. Meanwhile, you've got guys like Winston Churchill who'd been saying from the beginning, like, yo, this Adolf Hitler is a bad time. We should be ready to fight him. And that's part of why Winston Churchill is so idolized in england nowadays is because he was one of the first people to recognize that hitler was going to have to be fought with force not with diplomacy took him long enough to fucking listen to the guy well yeah the guys who were insisting on this were considered you know fringe politicians like shouting about threats that were never going to come to pass because again they were so not worried about germany they really thought like france would be a good buffer zone Belgium would be a buffer zone before that. Like, they would have all this time, and it would be easy to just win the war again. Because it would happen exactly like World War I, and that would be it. So on May 10th, 1940, again, about five... No, sorry, more like six months, because it started in 
September. September, November. This is our counting portion of the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More like eight months. I don't know why I said five or six. I thought it started in December for some reason. I don't know why. It was eight months. The better part of a year after the phony war began, it ends when Germany invades Belgium, the Netherlands, and Denmark. The trifecta. On May 10, 1940. The Holy Trinity. Belgium, the Netherlands, and Denmark. The tri-state area. So... Again, the French thought that it would take the Germans weeks and weeks to get through Belgium. They thought that they would have plenty of time to set up their defense so that they wouldn't be able to go through Belgium. And they didn't set up much of a defense along the border with Belgium accordingly. Especially lightly defended was the area of the Ardennes Forest because the French thought it would be really easy to pick off an army that went through it. Like it was too narrow to get an army through well so they'd be really vulnerable to attack. Belgium's air force consisted of about 170 planes and almost half of those were destroyed within the first 24 hours of Germany launching its invasion. Germany goes through Belgium in about a week. So France is like, oh, fuck. Yeah. Hey, guess what, France? This isn't going to be a war of long duration. This is going to be a war where Germany sprints across the land as fast as it can and blows up everything with tanks. So nothing like World War I. Not much, no. Yeah, they kind of dropped the ball on that one. Just like the French thought, the Germans go through Belgium. They go through the Ardennes Forest. It just happens way faster than they were ready for. And the Germans perform a move called the Sickle Cut. That's what they call it. They got names for everything. The sickle cut was designed to go through Belgium and just stab at France and cut off the French and British forces. There were also British forces in France to help with the defense effort to cut off those forces from the coastline and just advance and encircle them from there. And that's that's pretty much what they fucking do. (laughs) And to spoil it, it worked. It works really well. The Ardennes is lightly the Ardennes forest is lightly defended. Germany just blows through that. And during this process, up in the north of France on the border with Belgium, there is a section of the army of both British forces, mostly the British expeditionary force, a section of French soldiers and even some Belgian soldiers who all get cut off from the main force that when they've got the water on one side, and the German army on the other. And they're outnumbered and they're getting pushed back because more and more Germans are just flowing in from Germany through Belgium to attack them. And they get surrounded. They're on all sides. There's either a German army or water. And they can't fight the water. (laughs) So they have to fight the Germans. On the coastline... In the middle of the area that the British, that mostly British and some French, the Allied forces are all grouped together, not really sure what they're doing, because, like, that's a lot of Germans, more than they can fight, and they don't swim that good, not with all that equipment. They're saying there in the middle of this town is a, is a fishing town called Dunkirk. That's the name of the movie. It is, yes. 
Dunkirk happens to have the longest sand beach in all of Europe. Fun fact. Mm, that is An fun. An emergency plan is thus concocted by the British to evacuate their soldiers from Dunkirk back to the British Islands because it's like the closest distance across the English Channel between France and England. Right there, perfectly situated, is Dunkirk. So while the Germans continue towards Paris, and spoiler alert, it falls pretty pretty soon after, and while the Germans are just eating up the British troops defending Dunkirk, hundreds of thousands of British troops wait on the beach at Dunkirk for their naval transport vessels to take them home. That is the setting for the movie Dunkirk. Just a bunch of waiting. It's basically yeah. cast away with a lot more people. So I can I can tell you essentially what happens. I can give a spoiler warning if you want to be like completely surprised by the movie. You hear that? Everyone at home, turn it off. But keep subscribing because it's important. You can you can skip this part and go to the end. I'll have a fun little story at the end of this. We'll come up with a different ending. <laughs> we get, we'll have multiple endings. It's like the movie Clue. Choose your own adventure. But this is serious because it really has. So what happens essentially is the miracle at Dunkirk is this huge lucky event for the Allies where... Basically, British authorities enlist literally every boat they can find in England, like 700 civilian boats, like just fishing vessels. They just find a bunch of guys and they're like, listen, you got to pick up our boys. We got to go across the English Channel. We got to get some troops and bring them back here. And it works. It fucking works. They send naval transport vessels along with what are now known as the little boats of Dunkirk. And they send them over to Dunkirk. I mean, they saved the day. A bunch of them get sunk by both German aircraft and naval craft, U-boats. And then they take the hundreds of thousands of troops back to England so that they can reorganize and get ready for a new assault. Meanwhile, the Germans continue on to Paris and take Paris. And the French army surrenders just a couple months later. See, I, I wish I could be more excited about the miracle at Dunkirk, but there were so many football follies that started the event that I I can't, I'm losing the excitement. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is the whole point of this episode. I want people to go into Dunkirk going like, where is your portrayal of the British negligence, Christopher Nolan? Yeah, exactly. Like the, He missed the whole point. The whole point was that they all fucked up, and all he cares about is like the... The little boats that could. And yeah, and that's kind of what Winston Churchill says. He says like the same thing. He's like, "Look, this is a great, this is a great thing. Don't get me wrong. We saved hundreds of thousands of our boys. Got them back. Got them back here. But please remember, this is not a victory. <laughs> this is the opposite. This is just the defeat going better than it could have gone. And he has a famous quote: "Wars are not won by evacuations." Yeah. Well. They're lucky that they did win this one, because otherwise this would have Yeah, yeah, spoiler alert, the Nazis lose. Germany loses. Again, spoiler alert, turn off the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you don't... I I assume you don't want to know that, you know, might spoil 11th grade AP US history. Yeah, I don't think we'd be living in America right now if that was the case, so just a little little fun fact there. Yeah, we'd be living in Wolfenstein. We'd be living in whatever the 
whatever the that place joke, is called joke, in the high castle <laughs> that joke was for specifically tom lockney tom i referenced wolfenstein on my podcast tom it's nice to meet you this is andrew say hi oh i actually heard tom is he in your room yeah i keep him in my pocket actually oh that's weird yeah about an inch tall hmm. well i'm glad a one inch tall person can play wolfenstein so that's essentially the end of the phony war and the miracle at Dunkirk. The miracle at Dunkirk. It makes it sound so spectacular. And not, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's... It's a good thing. It's a good thing that happened. It is a good thing that happened. A lot of lives were saved. A lot of bravery from just, like, fishing captains. I mean, that's the coolest part. If you're just some guy who owns a boat in Britain, and, you know, the National Army comes to you, the Navy, and says, I need you, Eric... Yeah. I need you. You just, like, fucking do it? Like, yeah, I'll just ferry 7,000 people back and forth over and over again over a course of a couple weeks. But they fucking did it. Yeah. I think Mark Rylance plays one of the boat captains in Dunkirk. Hmm. It's a good role for him. I actually don't know the gentleman. He sounds quite nice. He's the one in the trailer who's like, there's no hiding from this son. Oh, yeah, he's got a great accent. Yeah, that's him. I think he's probably going to be good in it that's my hot take on that movie i think that's a fair assumption i'm also going to assume that there's some kind of twist ending because it's a christopher nolan movie it might not even though it's historical fiction i mean it is historical eh, does that count as historical fiction probably just call it a history movie but it depends on what they do it might be historical fiction yeah that's what i'm thinking maybe he uh maybe changes the ending a little bit so yeah that's the end of the story so at the end of every podcast episode, after I tell a big, long, depressing story about incompetence on a grand scale, uh, grand, about incompetence on a grand scale, I like to tell a little story about a, about competence on an absurd level. I call these pickles for the knowing ones. <laughs> uh. Google it. I swear you will be entertained by the man who wrote that book, because he was something. He's got a hell of a Wikipedia page. He is sponsoring this podcast. Pickle for the Knowing Ones. Or Plain Truth in a Homespun Dress. Had two titles, that book. Check it out, your local library. I mean, I guess. Yeah, I don't think you should actually read that book. It's almost incomprehensible. So, what we got today, I'd like to tell you a little story about something that was happening around the same time as this. So, while all this was happening, while Germany was, you know, remilitarizing the Rhineland, while it was... Uh, reuniting itself with Austria while it was invading the Sudetenland. A couple that were known as Fred and Lucille Morrison were playing with cake pans. They were they were playing with cake pans. Fred and Lucille Morrison were one day on the beach tossing a cake pan back and forth between them, playing catch. And strangers asked them, since they seemed to be leaving asked them if they could buy the cake pan from them for a quarter for 25 cents so they could play the same game of catch. Naturally, this sparked a business idea because you could buy the cake pans for five cents and then sell them on the beach for 25 cents. The... <laughs> I, 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 I'm beside myself with confusion. <laughs> Why the hell were they tossing a cake pan? So the cake pan was pretty aerodynamic, as it turned out. It kind of glided when you threw it in a specific throwing pattern. It's called a frisbee, assholes. Invent it. That is literally what I'm talking about, Andrew. This was the invention of the frisbee. Oh, my. 
<laughs> Fred Morrison is the inventor of the frisbee. After 1938, he what started forming. What a fucking forming... clown! Oh my god, <laughs> this guy. <laughs> a cake pan. That's how this was invented. <laughs> Look, I'm sure. I'm sure. Like, uh, you know, Fred, Fred Morrison. I hope your family isn't listening. I respect him. I like frisbees. I'm sure he was a great guy. But come on, why was he throwing a cake pan in the first place? That is a ridiculous way to spend your time. So... There were people dying on Dunkirk, and you were throwing a cake pan. The Morrisons continued developing the, these frisbees until World War II, when Morrison served in the Air Force for America. Uh... But of course, this was a little this was a little after Dunkirk because that because the Amer because the U.S. wasn't part of the war yet. Right. After he came back from the war, he started improving on the design for a flying disc. He had they had a bunch of different names. One was called the Whirl Away. One was called the Pluto Platter. That's the, the 50s, worst name of all time. I don't care what it, whatever he came up with before or after that. He got rid of the Whirl Away for the Pluto Platter. Yeah, that and the Pluto Platter is the one that like goes on to define all frisbees after it. It's like the design for the modern Frisbee. That's the Pluto Platter. Like, I can't imagine he was in a business by himself. There were other people around. Oh, yeah. He, like, he had, he formed his company, he formed companies with other people, a couple different companies. There were other uh, people who then... thought that the Pluto Platter was a good name, is what I'm getting at. It wasn't just this <laughs> loon. Yeah. Pla- this cake batter throwing buffoon. <laughs> it was many, many people said, yep, Pluto Platter, that's what it's going to be called. <laughs> yeah this had to go through a bunch of different Someone greenlit that. In 1957, he sold the rights to a company named Whammo. Oh, bingo bango. And they are the ones who came up with the brand name Frisbee. Frisbee in itself doesn't sound like a good name. I'm only used to it being a good name because I'm used to hearing it. Yeah, Frisbee came from a pie company that college students, they referred to flying discs as Frisbees because they resembled the uh pie pans pie tins i should say they resemble those by the frisbee pie company and so that's where the frisbee comes into being but it wouldn't have been such a success without a man named edward hedrick known as steady ed oh god what does this joker do (laughs) steady ed is who this story is really about oh i I, i'm still i'm still infatuated with with (laughs) freddie but let's Steady Eddie, let's let's get to him. Steady Ed Hedrick redesigned the Pluto platter. Awful name. He removed the planets which were designed on top of the disc. He increased the rim thickness, which allowed the disc to be a little more controllable, according to Wikipedia. And by the t- by night by the time 1964 rolled around, professional models started being marketed and soon after that the international frisbee association was created as was the frisbee golf tournament and then ultimate frisbee was also invented steady ed hedrick was so devoted to the frisbee i can't i can't express that enough his whole life after that was all involved with the frisbee and he he had a very unique way of demonstrating that when he died and was cremated. They made him into a frisbee. They made his ashes into memorial frisbees. 
that they More gave one? to the More guests. More than one? They gave to the people who went to his funeral. They gave them flying discs made out of his ashes that contained some of his ashes within, they like, whatever else made They turned him into the... a fucking give goodie bag. Oh, my God. And there are, like, there's, like, designs on it. Like, there's... It says stuff. Oh, my God. The real question is, and, and I don't know if this came up in your research, did he choose this, or was his family like, this is the way he would have wanted to go? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he chose it. God. I'm pretty sure he chose it. Where do you find and what's people? really crazy is, like, so when would you think he died, and when would you think they did the crazy thing of turning his ashes into a Frisbee? I'm going to guess... I'm going to guess this happened in the 80s. This happened in 2002. No, no, it didn't. Just 15 years ago. I was alive. That's the story of absurd competence today, because I cannot get over a man so devoted to his his partial invention, the Frisbee, that he he gets his ashes molded into a shape that you can use as a putter in disc golf. What? Okay, so so tell me... So say you're a guest at this place, right? Uh-huh. You're going, you're like, you're not a plus one, but basically like someone dragged you there and you're like, all right, better go. Yep. You come home with this guy's body on a Frisbee. <laughs> what do you do with that Frisbee? You yeah. can't play with it. You show it to the other person and you're like, hey, look at this quote. It says tee off and fry f- and fly freely. You, you can't play with it because it's a dead guy. You can't throw it away. <laughs> Because then you're dishonoring the dead guy. You don't want to keep it in your house because he's the dead guy. You mount it on the wall? He basically just gave people a problem. <laughs> he, he, he literally said, well, now that I'm dead, it's your problem now. And he I gave himself away. I love this. I love the idea of making your ashes into this stupid thing. It's like a fucking horror crux. <laughs> Like, if you get enough of these Frisbees together in a room, he's going to come back to life and invent something else that's dumb. Oh, my God. I'm never going to play with a Frisbee without thinking of these two idiots. <laughs> you can play with one of those rings. They didn't have anything to do with those. Oh, those are great. Yeah, I prefer I prefer those, actually. Those are great. Uh, again, I'm not past the cake batter throwing. That's just... Cake pan. Cake what? whatever. The... It's just the pan. They weren't throwing, like, actual cakes around. That would make more sense. Why would that make more sense? It's called a food fight, Rick. Ever lived it up? <laughs> the fact that they were throwing, like, cooking supplies around, I, I just... I know we're we're focusing on the wrong things here, but they were in the middle mm-hmm. of a field. Yeah, in a beach, on a beach. Well, they weren't cooking. Why'd they have it? They probably were eating cake, and then they were done with it. They were like, hey, look at this pan, and they started, like, tossing it. God, that's dumb. I'm really happy to ruin Frisbees for you. And I liked Frisbees. You know, I, I, I really had a good thing going with Frisbees. Well. Eddie takes the cake, no pun intended, with this uh, this whole oh, Frisbee nonsense. Steady Ed Hedrick. Steady makes sense. I get the nickname. It's a little, yeah. it's a little clever. Yeah, I mean, you got a guy named Ed. Might as well call him Steady. I bet I'm better at Frisbee than him. That wouldn't surprise me. Especially now that he's dead. Yeah, I bet I could beat any dead person, actually, at Frisbee. I think so. All right, and that's pretty much the end of the podcast. Wow. What a journey it's been. I I mean... Yeah, Yeah, I'm glad I could take you on it, Andrew. (laughs) I I feel like I was transported, in a way, on, on a disc. 
if you will. Yeah, yeah. See, first I first I put you down, I bring you down, so you think the worst about humanity, and then I'm giving you this wonderful story about a man who loved frisbees so much that he lived as one forever. <laughs> <laughs> he lived as many forever. Yeah. The best part about this is I will spend the rest of my evening googling Steady Eddie and his lifelong career. That is something I encourage. I encourage people to look at things that I talk about on the podcast and research them more deeply because wow guys you can research World War II as much as you want you'll always be finding new information it's kind of a big thing yeah you can come at World War II with a bunch of angles but I'm glad yeah, we looked I'm, at it from a very very serious angle and yeah. a very very silly angle I'm going to be looking at World War II from a different a bunch of different angles and each one is going to be like superficial overview overview kind of stuff none of this is going to be like deep dive research yeah better to skim the surface like a frisbee yep i'm just gonna keep making just, bad frisbee jokes just skim along the top on the air nice and steady. the wind thanks, thanks for being on, on my podcast me. andrew yeah man thanks for having me this was a blast and the best part is now i don't have to watch like that that take me down to a normal level episode of the office or something you know after you watch like a scary movie and you're like oh i need to I need to relax. That was kind of scary. Yeah, no, I I got my laughs in, and that's all I can ask. Andrew, you don't have anything to plug on the internet, do you? Any websites you want to share out? Well, so me and a buddy of mine, we've been working on this one website. It's called Facebook, and I think <laughs> I think a few of you out there might enjoy it. Just just check it out. www facebook not the Facebook. A lot of people get confused. Not to were you with brand confusion here but you also have a twitter account don't you i do i do have a twitter account and i should probably check what my twitter handle is before i give it out i don't want to be giving you the wrong handle and do you not know your twitter handle no one's ever asked me before that's why i don't have any followers (laughs) okay it is at a fleischer six that is the same as my skype name so if any of you want to follow me on skype and call me at weird times feel free to do so (laughs) That's A-F-L-E-I-S-H-E-R-6. The number six, not the word six. Yep. On Twitter. Yeah. Give him a follow if you want to, guys. Yeah, give me a follow. Let's talk Sixers. Let's talk uh, Let's talk Frisbee. I'm always around. My name is Eric McAdams. You can find me at Audaciously Yours on Twitter. You can find my personal website, NoCharacterIsSafe.com. Uh, you can find my other podcast on the Major Cast Network, the Shmanime Podcast, which, upda- which updates every other Tuesday, alongside this one updating every other Wednesday. And that's it for Big Time Whoopsies. Thanks for having me. Yeah, stay safe out there, folks. Safety is no accident. I'm Tom Lockney. And I'm Liam Sr. I really like video games and internet culture. And I like movies and TV. And every week we research a true story from our preferred mediums and tell it to the other person. It's super fun and it's great. And even when it gets a little intense, we find the laughs in it, damn it. Lots of learning, lots of laughter, sometimes bummers, but lots of friendship. Media Majors, every Monday on the Major Cast Network. Thanks for listening to the Major Cast Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.